Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending Friday the 14th of July. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up, Nat embarks on the first leg of her postcard pilgrimage. Author John Safran reminisces about Father Bob and asks who the bloody hell are we for SBS in his capacity as Australia's foremost Jew detective and Dr Jen breaks down for us weird new gut science. And debuts, award winners and retrospectives, Artistic Director of MIF, Al Cosser, takes us through the jam-packed program for this year's festival. Michael Harden enlightens us on the sausage and its global reach, and we ponder our main character potential with Simone Boldy's review of meta-narrative film The Ordinaries. Prominent puppet Randy Feltface is on the campaign trail with creator Heath McIver, but takes some time for tea and tales from the road in the midst of their global Feltopia tour, and the solving of a five-year mystery and how Nat's family yellow combi helped crack the case. Melbourne's own Triple R. We've heard about it a lot in the news, in the headlines, and we've also lamented about it a bit on the show on a personal note, the decline in the number of letters that are being sent. Um, most of them as well, if you do receive a letter, is from like a utility company or the council or government or something like that. So you could imagine my absolute delight that when I got home on Friday morning last week to see that we had received a postcard or at our house. This is a joyful occasion. Joyful, and it gets it gets better. Not only was it a postcard, it was a hand-painted postcard. My goodness. Someone had done it in, in watercolours, an image of a boat on a lake um, from Cradle Mountain in Fantastic. Tasmania. So not only did they go on a holiday, they captured a particularly beautiful vista with their own hand in watercolour, mm-hmm. produced it of a size that could be posted as a postcard, yep. wrote on it. On a sturdy card, GSM. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, you must be able to buy a blank one. And then they wrote the postcard. Then they put a stamp on it. Then they mailed it. Um, there was a fraction of a disappointment when I realised that when I flipped it over, and it wasn't meant. It was to the wrong address. Oh, yeah. that is disheartening. Let's call them. It was to. Um, Donna and John. Let's call them Donna <laughs> and John from um, Mark and Sue. Um, so, so, yeah. You had no direct relationship with any of these parties. No. Uh, but you happened to be the recipient and the brief bearer of the joy that this postcard delivered. Yeah. And so there's there, there could be um, – there's three options. So that I looked at the address. It's not our, nu- our number or street, but it's similar. Um, but there is, there's some things that have been crossed out. So it's either, um, 195, don't worry, I'm not going to go out and give the full address, but it's either 195 or 19 and a letter, a poorly written G, or they've also scribbled out something of the street. So it's either that they've gotten the number wrong or like they've confused that or it's the street, it is actually the original kind of spelling that they put on and crossed out, or it's both. And so I I left it, but yesterday, after a very restful weekend, I was like, I'll go for a stroll. And then I was like, wait a minute, I I might go and try and deliver this postcard to the right address. Yeah. Just continue the journey that it's been undertaking. Yeah, because I'm like, if it's the address I think it is, it was near where I used to live. I'm like, oh, that'll be a nice walk. But you were talking about it last week, Daniel, like a moment 
in your life where you're like it could be a film, like you were rating the coin, you, the, the coin collection, and maybe I don't know what were you going to do with it. Maybe take it, take a punt or something on the coins, roll the dice, and it could be a turning point in his life. Kind of like a gritty Australian kind of crime drama. I'm thinking kind of two hands esque, mm. and I feel a little bit like similar about just, trying to it deliver this postcard that it's yeah. landed in your hands. I mean, firstly, the person. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. They've absolutely sabotaged their own. They art. really have. And it's it's shame. it's a shame. It's a very big shame that all this effort got put into the picture. Yeah. And not enough on actual getting it to the recipient. Getting the address right. Because mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling they've gotten both wrong. <laughs> I am not optimistic, but I am going to try through a process of elimination. So I've gone on. So yeah, if Daniel's. Um, kind of moment with maybe raining rating the coin collection that is not his is like a gritty crime Australian drama that I'm thinking that my kind of journey with the postcard I'm feeling like I would love a fantasy kind of adventure trilogy maybe I'm a hobbit in it I'm thinking Lord <laughs> of the Rings kind of vibe so I've got three shots at it mm. so I did the first one first address uh, I went as far as knocking on the door I could rule it out i Pretty much I think I'm looking for an apartment block, I think is the key thing. Um, but, yeah, and I... So, am- sorry, you you went to the first apartment block I went in to this the- first uh, instalment of the trilogy. I went to, yep, the address where it was, um, it got the street name right and I was looking for a 19. I kind of knew it wasn't it. Like, I, I guess I'm thinking it's an apartment block based on... Um, if that's the street name. And I knew as soon as I saw it that it wasn't right because it wasn't a apartment block, but I still knocked on the door. I, f- I feel like it was a real rush knocking on someone's door because I'm like, this would be quite stressful. I feel like don't, like I would be stressed if someone kind of just was like, excuse me, is this where, you know, John and Donna live? And they'd be like, no, why? It could really like... And I, I have this important postcard which yeah. has been hand-painted to deliver. It's... Yeah, exactly. This is why I'm knocking on your door mid-morning on a Sunday. It's um, an opportunity for a delightful exchange at the very least. Yeah, I just didn't want to leave no stone unturned because, yeah, I think they really have made a mess of the address. So, yeah, it's on a journey, I guess. I've got two more addresses I think I can definitely, you know, within a tram and a walk, Um a way that I, I'm going to invest in, but how yeah. confident are you? I'm not confident, but um, why not? Be- because it's just not plausible that they would misspell or miswrite in the ways that you've deduced. Yeah, I mean, this one—I don't know what it is. It's like an upside-down five or a G, and then I think they've stuffed up both. To be honest, I think they've stuffed up the number, and I think that then they've stuffed up the name of the street, and it's a mess. But, you know, I'll give it a go. Maybe it's self-indulgent that I'm doing this for my own journey. You know, maybe I'll put on the soundtrack to The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings and just wistfully walk down. Maybe I'll wear a cape. <laughs> um, I don't know, though. If So if I do the next two houses and there's no – it's it's not John and Donna, then do you do Return to Sender? But no, they're on holiday. Mm. What are the options? Did the post person or uh, – do you side with them? Do you think if you're in charge of delivering this, your house would be where it would end up based on what you read? I feel like I understand 
um, I can relate to the postie and, and what they've done because I think maybe they would feel a, a similar sentiment of like, what is this address? Like the suburb, the postcode, the numbers, the street, none of it adds up. It's like, you know what? Here you go. This is a fair shot at it. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's reasonable that it ended up in um, our letterbox. I'm glad it did almost. I'm happy. But, you know, of course, ultimately I want it at its forever home <laughs> on someone on John and Donna's fridge. Absolutely. But, yeah, so. This should... is why you just pay for postcards <laughs> at a crappy little store. Yeah. Don't be original. Yeah. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. John Safran is a filmmaker and author of Murder in Mississippi, which won the Ned Kelly Award for Best True Crime. Depends what you mean by extremist. Shortlisted for the Australian Book Industry Awards. And Puff Piece, How Philip Morris Set Vaping Alight, which won him a trip to the cardiologist after his commitment to the expose went slightly too far. Now, the broadcaster and former Father Bob Maguire sidekick is back on our screens as part of the SBS series, Who the Bloody Hell Are We? And to tell us about it, the writer and self-described Jew detective joins us now. John, welcome back to Breakfast. Hey, how are you? We're well, I think. I can speak on behalf of Simon and that. <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. Who is the we in Who the Bloody Hell Are We? Um, the we is Australia. Mm. And so it's, uh, it's, it's three episodes. I only do one episode. Uh, and it's looking at the history of Australia through the history of Jews in Australia, like from the convicts all the way to last week. And then Adam Lau, because I wanted to do Chinese <laughs> Week myself, but they said, listen... Chris Lilly's totally <laughs> burnt anyone being able to do that shtick anymore, John. So you, let's just stick that you do Jewish Week. So Adam Lau's doing the history of Chinese people in Australia and Cal Wilson is doing the history of New Zealanders in Australia. Nice. Now, it's hard to imagine that there would be something that you wouldn't know about this world. And oh, yet... totally. No, 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 no. I learned so much new stuff because I was, I was like, brought in and... There's already like a layout of the idea of, of the shows, which is, you know, you start with the convicts, assuming this minority group had, conv- you know, there were convicts and you kind of move on up. And so I was a bit like whiny at the start where I was like, I don't have to do convicts because like the official story is just like, oh, there, were, there was a handful of Jewish convicts. Whoopee. <laughs> and, 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 and so I was like, well, how's that? Like what, what sort of like... Nothing happened. How's that, like, interesting or whatever? But then I kind of... But then, I don't know, there were some little senses in my head, little antennas going off, though, going, it really... Was the history of, like, Jews in Australia really that simple? Like, when they were on the first fleet and then they came over this handful, was it really like they were just another bunch of white people? And because, like, in England at the time, there would have been... There was all this sort of like awkwardness and, you know, about Jewish people and being in Europe thousands of years going back. And it's like, am I really meant to believe that, like, this the ship just came to Australia and then it was like... None That's of, it. Yeah, none of that came on the boat with it, all this kind of weirdness about Jewish people or whatever. And, and so I dug a bit deeper. So there was this one convict and she ended up, uh, marrying this guy who essentially became the you know the leader of uh, the the first colony, and so she was essentially the first lady. So there's this whole you know uh, nice little history that like oh the Jews finally after all you know thousands of years of wherever they were they you know 
you know, they were persecuted. Then in Australia, like, within 10 years, this, like, poor convict became the first lady of Australia. Well, like, what a great story or whatever. And then, but I was talking to her great, 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 great grandchild or whatever. And then I sort of, I learned that when you were a convict back then, like, you just had to go to church every Sunday and you weren't allowed to practice uh, or publicly practice any other religion. And then... Uh, and you know, you know, this Jewish convict and her husband, her non-Jewish, you know, husband. They had kids, but they were baptized. And I, I asked the great, 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 great grandchild. I go, well, what, did she really want her kids like baptized as Christians? And she goes, no, of course not. And then, it, and then I kind of learnt that well, you could be a Jew back then and kind of work your way up, as long as you were a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's a very different story to like. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I was just, you know, fine. You could just be Jewish and work your way up like anyone else. You're like, you, you had to kind of really compromise up to the point of dunking your kids in a baptismal front, font in a church. Mm. What about the bushrangers? Am I right in thinking? Yeah, there was a Jewish bushranger. That was a more, um, uh, from what I could gather, that, that was more of a pleasant, not pleasant, <laughs> but like where like the other bushrangers thought that the because uh, there was a, a Jewish bushranger. God, what was his name? His name was Jew Boy. That was his nickname. And uh, and they just thought it was something, like, funny and exotic about him or whatever. And and depending on... Uh, it's hard to know with some of these really old things whether how apocryphal they are. But the, anyway, the story is that, because Jews can't work on Saturday, that he held back on bushranging on the Saturday, you know, just to, <laughs> to obey Jewish law or whatever. Anyway, and, and I sort of, like, travel through... There's sort of, like, a... It, it, yeah, it's chronological and there's, like, a representative story for each era. And I guess, like, the, the big thing I look at, especially, like, through modern eyes or whatever, like, the big questions of today is, like, mm. uh, like are Jews white? Like, and were Jews, quote-unquote, white, you know, as convicts? Were Jews, quote-unquote, white when the white Australia policy was in and stuff like that? And obviously that's a bit of a, a weird thing because whole perceptions of race were different back then. So it, it is a bit sort of of a leap and a twist to kind of apply, 20, you know, 2023 eyes to that. Like, for instance, if it was just about skin colour, like um, Hitler should have really liked the Jews... <laughs> It's like, oh, you know, they're white like us. And, and clearly, so clearly, like, race didn't mean the same thing back then, in, including in Australia, as it, as it did now. So it's, it was really, uh, yeah, and, and, and SBS are just so cool to work for because they, I, cause when I was brought in, there was, like, this official kind of version of the history, like, we got given, and I just said, oh, can I just, like, like, just whine a bit <laughs> and not accept this and they were like yeah definitely and that's they, surely what they'd want from you yeah yeah, yeah. and so when we started giving them like the rushes where i was like going well you know it just really wasn't like it was a, a bit more complicated than that um then yeah they really liked it and and there's 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 sort of not there's sort of like spicy stuff in there which uh which i think is really like why not? But like, for instance, the whole thing of like, like settlers and people coming over, and that's just bad, and you know, whatever. And I bring up the whole, well, you know, if you if you're fleeing gas chambers, like, like you know, like 
is it bad? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and these are like really difficult questions and it's just really... But I present it in a very, like, me way or whatever, so it's not, like, all that heavy. But on the other hand, it's pretty cool that, like, like why not? Like, like, it, like if the assignment is looking at the history of, like, groups, in my case, Jewish groups, kind of that, why not kind of get into all the kind of awkward questions? Like, I went to... Uh, I imagine most people don't know about this, but some people would or whatever, but... Uh, during the 1930s when it was like, oh, my God, the Jews are all getting going to get killed in Europe, right? There were these plans, besides Israel, there were plans in other places around the world set up like, oh, should, we, should the Jews go to Alaska or should they go, and I think there was one place in Africa, and one place was the Kimberleys in um, Western Australia, and it really got... Um, drawn up it wasn't like just some guy kind of said it it's like the state i think the state government agreed to it and there was going to be uh israel was going to be in the kimberley or that was the proposal and uh so yeah we we cover that i go to the kimberleys and i see where the bagel shops and the (laughs) and the synagogues could have been yeah i mean this creatively you live in these knotty spaces yeah uh and it's what you did with father bob on Mm. sunday night saffron for so long he had his state funeral uh which you spoke at what can you speak to living with difficulty and even finding humor in it and father bob's oh totally i mean that's why we kind of got on so well is like it's i i just think it's like life is difficult and knotty, as you say. That's a good word. I'm going to use that. <laughs> but um, and like, why not? Like, like, if you're a writer or a filmmaker, or it just seems like uh, almost like on a storytelling level, like even parking aside, or oh, what's what's the right thing to do, or whatever. It's not even. It's like on a storytelling level, it's just so much more interesting to get into interesting stories by not of way like not denying the knotty stuff, like. I wrote a piece in the monthly this month about Father Bob and I was talking about what one of the things he taught me was um, you don't have to like people, only love them. And, and, and he told me that the first time because I was on the church grounds with him when I was first filming with him. I think it was like the first time I was filming with him and he wanted this kind of touching moment where there was like this downtrodden dude who like hangs around the church ground and he goes, oh, come on over here or whatever. And the, and the downtrodden man goes, oh, yeah, no, thank you, Father Bob. And thank you, Father Bob Foundation. Like, you've really helped me over the years, da, 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 da. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. So there's a touching moment for the doctor. And then he sort of just effortlessly kind of rolls into going, yeah, I really blame the Jews for like... Like, this is, this is like, they, they really... He was basically, he's blaming the Jews for the fact that he was homeless for some reason, right? And then, yeah, that's when Father Bob said to me, he goes, oh, listen, you don't have to like people, only love them. And, yeah, and so the piece I wrote was all about just putting on the table that people in need of, you know, help, um, there's, there is likely to be jerks as in the more general population. And, you know, like, if you just... In the general population, there's lots of jerks. Mm. So if you're going to, like, uh, be working with whoever, like whether it's homeless people, asylum seekers, people in prisons, whatever, there's just going to be jerks. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but but it's like that doesn't mean, and and you and it's I think it's just a lot better to put that on the table and discuss it. Yes, mm. there's lots of jerks, and uh, rather than sort of like 
having this weird thing where you make out everyone's a goody two shoes. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh man, like all the politicians and the bankers, they're all freaking evil or whatever. And then there's like all these goody two shoes, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, who are in need of help. It's like, it's just like, no, nah, no, nah, there's. No, there's some pretty awful people in the need of help, but they you're like you still have to help them, yeah. and and that's how like that's what Bob meant by you don't have to like people, just love them. Like yeah, you you don't have to, yeah. And yeah. grappling with the grey, as you say, is yeah. interesting. It, you never appeared to waste Father Bob's time. Every time you used him and worked together, <laughs> yeah. it was meaningful. And, yeah, but he but did, I think he liked that. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he he said yes to a lot, didn't he? Oh yeah, totally, totally. Like um. He he was just always really helpful. Like even with my book about Philip Morris, the cigarette maker. Like I went to him and I kept on annoying him about you know like do will the people who work for Philip Morris will they go to hell? And you know because it says you know thou shalt not murder and all that stuff like that. Are they murdering people? And yeah, I just constantly be badgering him. And it was like I think it's a a good kind of way to arrive at things like. Badger and annoy someone. Yeah. <laughs> and he's someone you identified as very wise. There was the documentary, yeah. of course, in Bob We Trust, and yeah. people look to you for your fearlessness and your adventurous, inquisitive spirit, but you certainly relied very heavily on Father Bob for his wisdom and perspective. Oh, yeah, totally. I, like, and, and also, he's absolutely, he's got like the anti Dunning Kruger thing where, <laughs> and, and, like, if you want, where it's like he knows so much, and because and, and he was so old, so he'd lived through so much, he was so intelligent and thing, but he was still really, he was more, fo- he didn't think that, so he was always like mm. focusing on what he didn't know and it, and sometimes to like bizarre levels, like he always thought that young people and artists like were just brilliant and they, <laughs> and they knew stuff, like they were magical or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And he could not get his head around that sometimes, like, sure, yeah, they are there, but sometimes, like, they're not. They're just So I once walked in, like, when we did the radio show on Triple J and it was reading this, this is when, like, Nokia phones were becoming the big thing and there was text messaging was, like, everyone was getting their head around it, you know, like, what's this text messaging? A bit like, you know, getting their heads around what TikTok is now or whatever. And it was this book and it said the poetry of text messaging, right? And... It was a total con job book. It was like, you know, at bookshops, how they've got those little gimmick books near the front shelf or whatever. (laughs) And he's just like reading it and he's trying to like understand it. And I'm, and it was just like, because it was flavour of the month. It'd be like if there's a book, there's probably a book now in the bookshop, you know, the the poetry of TikTok. That's sort of like, (laughs) anyway, so he's just reading this book and he's trying to like decode it. And I'm just going to him because he just could not accept. That, like, people in the arts and young people, because he's all about technology and stuff, could just, like, put out something that's just, you know, doesn't he, land. He was searching and, and he's, for he's the a false premise. <laughs> that's <laughs> just so endearing. <laughs> yeah, no. He just has such faith and yes. wants so much to be a part of it and keep up. Yeah. Uh, we're speaking with John Safran about Who the Bloody Hell Are We, which premieres on SBS this Wednesday. I'm interested in Father Bob and religion and your take and our see that Brian Jonestown Massacre are touring in November and I remember being at a show and seeing you taken backstage and oh, yes. I was wondering if that was related to was your that. religious uh, excursions. If, if we did like a satanic <laughs> thing backstage. No, he wanted to meet me because he'd somehow, you know, just because of the internet and stuff, um, had seen some of my stuff. And he just had such, you know, he's got such... Anton obs- Newcomb. Yeah, yeah, he's got such obsessive... 
fans. And even... So it was like at this backstage party and they'd all been trying to... And, and he's a bit of a... Uh, what do you call it? Like a... Not in a bad way, but... You know, I, you know, he doesn't necessarily... He's very doesn't really talk uh, oh, necessarily okay. or whatever. He's a bit... He could come across as a bit cold or yes. whatever like that. Or so aloof. Is that aloof, the that's the word I'm looking for. But then... Because he wanted to talk to me, so we're just blabbing in the corner like that. And and in this case, everyone else there thought I had the magic dust because they they'd been like trying to talk to because they love him or whatever. And he's aloof. And then it's like, and then after they go, what did you say? What did you talk about? They thought I had some like, uh, yeah. And I, I could I could give them the magic wisdom of how yes. to how to make Anton Newton uh, non aloof. What was what was it in your oeuvre, your comic oeuvre that grabbed his attention? Oh no, he was into all the, like the religious stuff. He was into Mormons, and he actually pitched me this idea, and I've never been able to figure out whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Or something in the middle. Like, okay, I'll tell you what the so he's going, oh we've got to do he's saying we've got to do this thing where we go to NASA <laughs> and we pitch them spacesuits, like new spacesuits, but they're painted all black and they have like a few stars on them. What? I don't know. So Just a complete going, rebrand. For like, no, no, it was so but he's it, had to, textiles. it had something to do with and then because then when they're floating in outer space, like they're kind of invisible. Like they're in, they're in space camouflage, and anyway, that was his idea. I haven't. I'll be taking that to SBS <laughs> next week in. to pitch that. Exactly. The follow-up anyway, series. That's the mysterious conversation I had with Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, who the bloody hell are we? Premieres on SBS this Wednesday at seven thirty PM. You're the first episode. Yes. Then we've got Cal Wilson, uh, Cal Wilson, and Adam Lau. Does that mean you're the best episode? Have you seen the other two? Oh, no, I haven't seen the other two. No, they're, they're good. They're good. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. watch your own. Yeah. It was just like, you know, they threw dice and stuff. It's also going to be on SBS On Demand, their streaming service, so you can just watch it whenever. Beautiful. Cool. Start, starting from next Wednesday, 7.30. And uh, your essay about Father Bob is in this month's issue of The Monthly. John Safran, great pleasure to have you in studio. Thank you very much. Triple R. That theme inspires in all of us that gut feeling. We're about to be informed and entertained. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning. You know I love talking about our guts. <laughs> yes, it's our occurring. guts are just so good and so interesting. So I know we have talked about the microbiome before, but there is an exciting new study I want to tell you about. Um, but just let's remember, let's celebrate the fact that our bodies are, are full of and covered in bacteria. Have you said good morning to your bacteria this no, morning? No, this morning. good morning. Good morning. <laughs> yeah. We were talking a little bit about apple cider vinegar before. Oh, yeah. as a kind of a, approaching this topic and probiotics and everything. Yeah, well, I think once I tell you the, the story, you're gonna, we're all going to have to talk about what we can do to increase our gut bacteria. But so we know, you know, our mouths, our guts are full of bacteria, but also our skin. That's one of my favourite facts. Do you know that your forearm, you know, is host to a lovely community of bacteria? Because when you talk about skin bacteria, people tend to think about their underarms, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just say hello. Hello, good morning, skin bacteria. Wow. But, of course, the biggest collection of bacteria in our bodies is definitely in our gut. We're talking literally trillions of microbes that live in human guts. So people call it the gut microbiome or the gut flora. Um, and it's really important 
So we know that our gut microbiome has relationships with a whole lot of diseases, physical diseases, but also mental health. So we, we know that there are important links there. Um, and our bacteria do super important things like breaking down fibre, really um, important role of our immune system, making some of our vitamins. And I think everybody has heard by now that the key thing is diversity is good. You want to have a really big diversity of different microbes in your um, in your gut. That's that contributes to good health. Um, and you know we know there are thousands of different potential species. Each individual might have a couple of hundred and different things. I mean, you guys tell me what do you think? What plays a role in determining what bacteria live in your guts? Definitely diet. Absolutely, what we eat is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I, I genuinely don't know. The pollution, I mean, the... Yeah, I mean, where you live, absolutely. Yeah, where you live. If it's been shown that different cities have different kind of um, signatures of, of microbiota, absolutely. Um, whether you were breastfed or not has a difference. Whether you were delivered vaginally or by C-section, that also makes a difference. Your age, whether you're taking antibiotics or not, any illnesses. You know, there's heaps and heaps of things. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the, the stories that I love is that uh, one of the single or one of the strongest predictors of the bacteria floating around in the air in your house is whether you have a dog or not. Oh, how interesting. And it's good to have a dog, you know, diversity is good. Anyway, what I'm all getting to is that to understand the relationship between human health and the human microbiome, obviously we need to understand what is normal. Like, you know, what what do we need? What would a normal healthy person have in their gut bacteria? But there's a really big problem in that, and that is that almost all of the research on the human microbiome has been conducted in urban, people living in urban areas almost all of them in America or Europe. Mm-hmm. That's not where humans evolve. So what we're looking at is what industrialised, Western, urbanised people have in their guts. Imagine if we could say, well, what does a, a you know a more um, traditional human you know living a, sorry a human living a more traditional lifestyle like what would that look like? And so that's what this new study is. A really exciting new study. It just came out last month, and scientists looked at the gut microbiomes from people in um, the Hadza community. So this is a, a group of hunter-gatherers living a relatively traditional lifestyle still in um, northern Tanzania. And there's been lots and lots of studies on them. Anyone who ever did anthropology, you know, university will have heard of the Hadza people. Um, but this, in this study, they compared the gut bacteria of the Hadza people with people living in Nepal, which I guess you might think of as a bit of a kind of a halfway position, maybe in terms of, of industrialisation, and then people living in California can't get much more industrialised than California. Um, And you won't be at all surprised to hear that what they found was that people, um, the Hadza people tended to have many more gut microorganisms than the other two, many more and much, much bigger diversity. Um, So we can say definitively that a Western lifestyle is diminishing the diversity um, of of bacteria in our guts, which is bad. Absolutely. We, we don't want that. And, you know, maybe it's diet. We know that Hadza people eat a lot more fibre than Western people do, um, but it could be a whole lot of other things. So here are the numbers, which are pretty striking. If you're a person in the Hadza community, if you are um, of the Hadza people, then you've got an average of 730 species of um, gut microbiome per person. 730 species, and a lot of them were new to science, had never been recorded before. 
If you're in California, the average gut microbiome contained only 277 species. Whoa. So what is corn syrup killing all the species? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like it's a massive difference, right? And then Nepal was really interesting. They were very clever in choosing Nepal as their example. So people in Nepal who lived a farming lifestyle had an average of 435 species. So, you know, we're talking kind of somewhere halfway in between. But people who were foraging and weren't interacting with livestock, they had an average of 317 mm. species, so much closer to, to what was going on in California. Um, and they found, as I said, you know, some of the bacteria they found in the Hadza people were new to science and there was one species in particular that they didn't find, that they found in the Hadza people that they didn't see at all in the Californian people. So they're like, maybe this is, we're witnessing an extinction event, that as societies become more industrialised, there are species of bacteria that are just going to be lost forever. Which... And what does it portend? When Do you feel different when you have a increased diversity of bacteria? Well, I think you are just, you know, in the in the truest, broadest, most holistic sense of the word, you are just a healthier person because you're more resilient. So you don't end up as um, at high risk of a whole lot of diseases. Your guts can tolerate antibiotics better. Um, so, I mean, how would we know if you feel better? Because you don't suddenly go from having a low diversity of gut bacteria to a high diversity of gut bacteria. I mean, sure, if you go and have your kombucha or you have your kefir or whatever, I mean, I think we can have small impacts. But I guess that... That's where this whole thing leads me. So as an individual, mm. you can say, well, I want to maximise the diversity of my gut bacteria, so I'm going to eat sourdough and I'm going to make sure I have a dog and, you know, I'm going to grow my own veggies and, and interact with dirt lots, you know, all the things we know. But what about for humanity? You know, what about, uh, you know? So there's basically been 200 to 300,000 years of evolution of modern humans where we've been presumably been you know, evolving these really diverse gut bacteria to keep our bodies healthy. And now we're witnessing, presumably, this extinction event where they're starting to disappear. And some people would argue that at the same time as we've become more and more industrialised and diseases have been becoming more and more common, maybe the underlying cause is the lack of diversity in gut bacteria. I mean, that's just a theory. We mm. don't know. And but it kind of makes sense, right? They're certainly correlated, even mm. if they're not causing, you know, even if there's not yeah. causation. Fascinating that this is the first study of its type, so hopefully there'll be a deeper investigation to follow as well, would you imagine? Yeah. Oh, look, there's definitely been other studies. There's been some other studies like this. It's not the first, but this is the most detailed mm. and has come out with the kind of the clearest data, I guess. But one of the things I read, which I thought was amazing, was this idea that, you know, how there's the seed bank in Svalbard? Have you heard about that? This idea we need to preserve every seed of every important plant on earth um, in this vault that's carefully controlled for humidity and temperature so that you know into the future if we need to grow plants after some massive disaster we can and you know support ourselves grow crops the idea that maybe we need to do the same thing for human for the human microbiome we need to capture all of these bacteria and preserve them and put them somewhere safe so that maybe one day in the future if we become so industrialized that we just have no ability to fight off disease diseases anymore you know we can reinfect ourselves wow. are, are there steps the being bacteria? taken to preserve these I don't species know, simon i'd yeah. love to know yeah i mean maybe it would be possible it sounds like a project for gwyneth paltrow to <laughs> scoop up tanzanian <laughs> gut bacteria oh, can you imagine you know here welcome to my factory full of poo samples yeah well, it's, it's on the horizon uh that's me and what would what's your main advice do you think to help diversify uh, your gut microbiome and is it a long-term project 
Yeah, I don't think you can eat well for one week and say, yep, tick, I've done that. <laughs> I think just diversity, avoiding processed foods as much as possible, which, you know, we've got to be aware of equity here. You know, fresh food can be very expensive, but as much as possible eating a lot of plants and, and eating a lot of fresh food, although we've talked before frozen fruit and veggies are, are fabulous too. But just I think it's about diversity of diet is probably the most important mm. thing and that individuals can do. And the benchmark, the lowest benchmark is 200 and... Uh, in California, it was... 277. Yeah, 277 compared to 730 right. in Tanzania. Well, come on, Aussie. Let's get into 300s at least. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Jen, always fascinating. Thank you. See ya. Triple R. Melbourne International Film Festival, Australia's leading film festival and alongside Cannes and Berlin, one of the world's oldest, takes place this August and has just released its full program featuring 275 eye-opening films from over 70 countries ready to be discovered, highlighted, colour-coded, scheduled and inevitably (laughs) debated. Joining us with his encyclopedic knowledge of contemporary cinema, we welcome back to Breakfasters and brandishing a newly printed MIF program, Artistic Director of MIF, Al Cossa. Hello, Al. Hello, good morning all. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. It's yes. always a pretty amazing time of the year. You build this kind of immense program for 12 months and you let it into the world and you see where it goes and that's the moment we're at now. So like you say, MIF is 270 films, it's 18 days in cinema, it's seven country Victorian towns, it's at home streaming on MIF Play, it's everywhere you are, it's taking over the month of August, so we're ready for it, we have a feeling you guys are too. Mm. Did I hear correctly on Promise Green that you have t- more than one gala? Sorry? Uh, galas, opening galas. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we have uh, an opening gala, it's Shader, which is the debut feature of Nura Niasari, uh, a Castlemaine-based filmmaker, actually, and her film is just beautiful. It stars uh, Zaha Amir Ibrahimi, who was Best Actress at Cannes last year, incredible ensemble cast, Gillian Nguyen, uh, Leah Bissell is in there as well, Osama Sami. Uh, it was actually an opening selection at Sundance. It was an audience winner there, uh, award winner there. It has, you know, an extraordinary, I guess, celebration to it already. So we really want to have that hometown, uh, Melbourne-made, world-class cinema, really kicking the doors open with MIF this year. Uh, and the other galas are uh, our Music on Film Gala, which is already announced, and it's a new one for us this year. It's uh, Paul Goldman's Ego, the Michael Gudinski story. So obviously you have this this revolutionary music impresario at the centre of it and this iconic figure. Um, but as a film, it's so expansive and it's so eclectic and it really is like seeing the history of contemporary Australian rock music kind of unfold before your eyes. It's something I think that'll be special and I think a very emotional screening as well and uh, the closing night film which we just announced last night uh, is Theatre Camp which um, launched again at Sundance this year, was an award winner there uh, and it's almost a Christopher Guest kind of Waiting for Guffman-esque mockumentary set in the world of aspirational sort of musical theatre uh, you have Amy Sedaris as a camp director, has a bye-bye birdie-related accident, goes into a coma. Her summer camp goes into a state of creative uh, disrepute, uh, and they got to put on a show. Uh, <laughs> and it's uh, Patty Harrison. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a really kind of wonderful cast that's in there as well. Um, and it'll go out all singing, all dancing. I'm sure we'll have uh, some theatre taking over the after party. It'll be a good time to go out on. <laughs> uh, what else can you tell us that you've hitherto been unable or kept storm over that uh, that is just fresh and released now that you're excited to explain. 
Yeah, so I think one of the highlights for, for this year and something we're really, really proud of is the return of MIFS Bright Horizons competition. So this is something we introduced last year for the 70th anniversary. The frame around it really is a competitive space that's you know world-class for global breakthrough cinema. First and second time filmmakers really breaking down the doors. Uh, some of these films scream in a screen in IMAX. There's a lot of international attendance for them. Uh, there's a $140,000 uh, award prize that is attached to it uh, from an international jury. The jury presidents for that um, this year are Saul Williams, an incredible uh, actor, writer, poet, and musician, and Anisia Oziman, uh, Rwandan playwright, filmmaker, uh, and actor as well. Uh, and there's some really pretty amazing films in there. I mean, I'd pick out something like uh, Earth Mama. It's a directorial debut of Savannah Leaf, who has the most fascinating background. She's a, an Olympic volleyball player turned Grammy Award winner for music video. Uh, this is her direct debut and it's just poetic and complex and, and beautiful and just one of the films of the year I think um, and we have something like The Sweet East which is the debut of Sean Price Williams, celebrated cinematographer shot films for Safety Brothers Good Time, um, Alex Ross Perry Abel Ferrara uh, and this is his I guess tawdry picaresque through the American dream or what's left of it and it has uh, Simon Rex, it has uh, Talia Ryder from uh, Never Really uh, Sometimes Always, uh, Earl Cave is in it, uh, I Itabiri from The Bear, just this the most incredible cast written by film critic Nick Pinkerton as well. So I'd say if you want to see really vital, really dynamic, really exciting cinema, um, Bright Horizons is a place to go. It's something mm. we're very proud of. Yeah. Back when you're a punter, what's a memory of MIF that stays with you as a festival that is integral to the character of the city and for your even personal cultural learning and growth? Yeah, see, I grew up in New Zealand. So um, my, my I guess, education into the festival world was really at what was at that stage the Auckland National Film Festival, now New Zealand um, Film Festival, uh, and particularly the programming and curatorial work of Bill Gosden, um, who was... He was at that stage the the second director and was there for 32 years. And so you had this figure who was an individual and whose tastes kind of spanned decades. And really when I got to that university age, which is when I think people just start absorbing like the world of cinema beyond the multiplex, it very much hit me like like that. And the memory I have at, at MIF that is sort of connective to that is once I got into the programming team or, or into the role that I'm in now, um, having the opportunity to work with him um, was something really, really special in terms of sharing that passion, but from a completely new direction in terms of being an audience for him, but thinking about audience with him. So I think that's a figure who was really seminal, important, inspiring in how I think about curation, but also who opened me up to so many things I'd never seen on screen in the world of film before. And I think um, having that relationship in terms of and he's, he's passed away now in the last few years, but in terms of thinking about what a festival is, thinking about how it is for an audience and thinking about those moving pieces and magic moments of filmmaking that really spark kind of passion uh, was, was something really special. Yeah, mm. yeah. That's amazing. And what's your MIF festival experience like? Because Daniel was like referencing the highlighter. <laughs> There's people, they've got the program and they are seeing films all day, running around, few hot drinks in between. Do you get to do that as the artistic director, like like at least a day or is it oh, all business? We give it, we give it a go. We give it a go. It's... um. Uh, Myth is such a massive thing. It's this beer moth, and you kind of it has its own momentum. So you hit the green light, and it goes, 
and you start, you know, you've been planning, 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 and then you react. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's on fire over here, something that's falling down over there, something that's ridiculous over there. Um, So you're kind of doing a lot of kind of making things work, making things happen in the background. But beyond that, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, presenting guests and presenting artists and connecting artists to audience. Um, you know, people who come to MIF uh, from overseas, you know, they're flying 30 hours in the middle of winter, so they, they really want to be here, which is which is pretty amazing. And when they get here, they love it, and they love meeting audiences, they love being a part of it. So a lot of what we do is running around and just finding ways to connect um, artists with audience while we're here. So I might be at events, screenings, interviews, dinners, preparing stuff for the next day, putting out a random fire, all of that <laughs> kind of stuff. And, you know, if I can see five minutes of a film in between those things, um, all the better. And, you know, we have people coming out this year like uh, Celine Song from the film Past Lies, which is, is I think, one of the most beautiful films of the year. I think uh, it's an Oscar contender. I think it's something that people will be talking about a lot in December in terms of best of lists. So I'd really encourage people to go out and... And to, to experience kind of a conversation with her. We have her in talks. We have her presenting the film and cinema, um, as well as, you know, celebrated American indie uh, stalwart actor, um, uh, producer, Mark Duplass, who's a pretty iconic figure, will be here for a film called Biosphere, directed by Mal Eslin, that he wrote and stars in. It's effectively a two-hander. He's a catastrophizing American president who's wrecked the world and now lives in a geodesic dome playing Nintendo all day, and something kind of unexpected comes of that situation that I won't spoil here that the film fully commits to and it's pretty uh, amazing so we're really looking forward to welcoming those kinds of people and you know making Melbourne light up for them when they get here as well. What about genre you can browse by genre what's your approach to genre and curation? (laughs) Yeah, in terms of putting together like an eclectic festival experience. I mean, that's the joy of MIF or I think of any festival as well. And I think the kinds of people um, that do come to MIF are those, I mean, some of them take take three weeks off and MIF is their annual holiday, their cinematic holiday, and they might see 70, 80. Like I think you can, the limits of human experience uh, physically are probably 90 <laughs> films plus, and there are people that, that go there and that's kind of amazing. Um, but I think the joy is eclectic. I think it's not being kind of bound to anything and the joy is just throwing a random dart on the page and seeing whatever is next. The thing with a festival is, you know, you might love what you see, you might hate what you see, we hope you remember what you see and we hope that, you know, seeing something outside of your experience will make you ultimately love cinema a little bit more, maybe a bit more curious about it, maybe, you know, choose to see a few things outside of your experience you you might normally not um so all of those things sort of matter i think you need palate cleansers i think if you're going in to see something that's four and a half hours long that requires your kind of full lean in commitment to it you've got to hit the reset button with something a bit lighter um i think a program like myth you know 275 films also needs open doors to it so there are things that are meant to be that like your your broad populist comedies that kind of bring people in that have that star power and then when you're there you start to look around and you start to see what's around you and you know some of the nooks and crannies and and some of that kind of thing um there's also sort of a knack to scheduling because it's not only films it's the conversation about films and how kind of world word travels and how that kind of builds over the course of 18 days because there are dynamics to the way people talk about film in terms of of how they watch and receive them i think as Mm. well can you predict what becomes a hit before it becomes a hit (laughs) 
Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes not. We always wonder what the first film in the festival is that's going to sell out, and it's never the thing <laughs> you, think, you think it is. I remember back in, oh, it was like 2011, the thing that shot off the shelves first was like uh, a Melbourne on screen newsreel uh, program from like the, you know, 40s, 50s. That was the first thing out the door. That wasn't that wasn't the Khan Palm Door blockbuster. <laughs> wow. Yeah, was like, <laughs> and did you get to the root cause? Like, who started it? No, like, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's like maybe it's that low like, like locality thing. I think yeah. Melbournians are very proud of their city and they're very curious about their city and they kind of look towards it and, and that is kind of a motivating factor. You do see a lot of people really embrace that sort of local local kind of thing. Any thoughts on what the film that'll sell out this year? I know. You- Oh, look, I think it'll be, First. I think it'll be, I think it will be past lives. Um, there's films that I think will be utterly. I think the birthday party doc, Mutiny in Heaven, will be super popular straight away. Uh, I think one of the things I think will have a really wonderful reception uh, at MIF this year uh, is an Australian film, film called This Is Going To Be Big. And it's the most beautiful, heartwarming uh, documentary that, that you'll see at the festival this year or, or one of them certainly. It's by Thomas Charles Highland and it follows a group of neurodiverse teens at high school and it's sort of this coming-of-age setting and the kids come of age through their high school production, through auditioning for it and, and rehearsing for it. Uh, and the theme of it is that it's a time-travelling John Farnham-themed musical. Uh, so there is, there is so much joy to be found in that synopsis. I think it'll really hook people for a good reason. It's utterly beautiful. Uh, we're smack bang out of time. Uh, however, I, I am looking at the venues of, you know, in Warrnambool and Chuka and Bendigo and Bright and the expansion to the regions. How important is that? It's really important. Um, a couple of years back, we doubled our presentation in terms of going there for two weekends. We used to do a, a travelling showcase. After the festival, we folded it all in. Um, the reason for that is we want it to be a substantial festival experience. We want those areas to have access to festival guests. We want them to be a part of all of the conversation un- unrolling. Um, we've started to expand some special events there as well. There's uh, an Orchestra Victoria presentation that'll be in Bendigo. We're doing uh, a talks event in Castlemaine this year. So we're starting to vary some of the programming there as well. But there's seven countries Victorian locations. They're 11th to 13th and 18th to 20th of August. Um, beautiful weekend away in the country, beautiful day trip if you want to mix things up. Um, but we're really, really happy to be there and they're very important to us. Beautiful. Well, MIF, as Al says, runs this August. Head to miff.com.au. The program is published and available when? Uh, the, the print program? The print program, well, it was released last night to members. It comes out in the age on Saturday. A good way to get it is at our Acme box office. There'll be a whole stack of them there in the city day to day. Uh, and our box office is, is open from 10. Uh, and, yeah, Beautiful. I wish you well. Uh, <laughs> have fun. Miff.com.au. Thanks, Al. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. <laughs> It's time for our food interlude with Breakfast's sensitive New Age gourmand, Michael Harden. Morning, Michael. Good morning, that's me. So <laughs> sensitive. Uh, now, this is a follow-up. 
Yes, it is. I thought, you know, it's sort of like we'll have, you know, bookends from, from last time. So we had MASH last time. So I thought, ah, oh, bangers mm. would be a good thing. And um, I was actually really glad that I did because sausages, I think, are one of those things that everybody takes a bit for granted because they've always been around and we're kind of like, you know, they're comfort food and all of that sort of stuff. But they actually, they're, they're quite an amazing invention. They've been around, like the first references to sausages uh, were in um, Mesopotamia 4,000 years ago. So they have been on the scene for quite some time. And um, and it's sort of like, I feel like they're sort of, and it's in pretty much every cuisine that you can think of in the world has some form of sausage. So it doesn't matter which continent you're from. Or it's like, you know, like there's African sausages, there's European sausages, there's Asian sausages. You know, it's like mm. there's South American sausages. It's like, you know, European, of course. And, uh, you know, they just, they're, they're just kind of everywhere. So I feel it like, you know, it's sort of like we should, uh, it's like extend, you know, like world peace through sausages. That's you know, Because right. we all share this common... Snag diplomacy. Yes, humanity in eating sausages. So it's kind of like, a, I love that. And I kind of like the, the reason why they were developed as well because it was like they were also developed because it was like um, to say to use waste product. So they're kind of like, you know, you're kind of looking at looking at their there as they use like the sinew and the blood and the fat and the, you know, kind of all the scraps. It's like the original nose to tail eating sort of literally mm. and they're all going in there and it's sort of like and there's little flavorings and like depends on where you're from and everything but they also sort of reflect the cultural and sort of religious and climate of the regions that they're from so that those sausages differ like you know you've got fresh sausages and then you've got dried sausages and everything and so you're looking at things like um you know in sort of the warmer climates like, you know, you're looking at Southern Europe and, you know, um, across Asia and Africa, you'll get a lot more sort of dried, fermented sausages because it sort of it preserves them better. And, um, and then sort of in the colder climates, you'll have more sort of smoked and fresh sausages. So you're looking at, you know, the sausages in Scandinavia or in Britain and, you know, those, so you've got that sort of stuff. And, you know, with, with those sort of in, um, in Asia, there's sort of like there's more of a fermented kind of thing to them as well. So they sort of reflect that. And then you sort of think about the kind of what's inside the sausages as well. So in cultures where they don't eat pork because sausages, the vast majority of sausages have pork in them, but then you look at like countries in the Middle East um, where Islam is the religion, then you will have a lot of lamb sausages and beef sausages and everything. So they kind of like they're really reflective of the society in which they came in. But it's sort of like everybody loves a snack, obviously. <laughs> That's right. so. Bit of bread, bit of sauce. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and do they? What's the curve? Is there? Is that? Is that common around the world? I mean, is the curve of the sausage? Is that using the? In- Testing? Yeah, it's sort of like there's a little bit of that. It's sort of like, but I think it sort of depends on the sausage itself and it sort of depends on the casing as well because the casings were sort of originally it was all about um, it was the it could be the intestine or it could be the stomach lining or it could be the call, which is the sort of connective tissues that are, that are around organs. So there was like one of my favourite sausages ever is a kind of it's an argument, of course, between the Turks and the Cretans about whose sausage it is, but it's sort of Chef Tales and it is. 
sausages and it's a sausage, a pork sausage that's like beautifully spiced and usually cooked over coals and that's wrapped in call fat and um, it's, it really is one of the most sensational sausages. If you can get your little paws on one of those, <laughs> I would go for it. Um, as you were saying, it has such a deep and rich history. Yes. Are you seeing a lot of experimentation in the field of sausages at the moment? I think sausages have always been where people sort of get their experimentation on. You know, they're kind of like, you know, they're, they're people love to chuck different things in a sausage to see if it works and I think but generally it's sort of like it seems to be there's like a standard of sausage that you start with and then you kind of add stuff to but it's sort of like you know there's there's a sausage king competition in Australia every year um, between the butchers come through and they've sort of got all their different concoctions and different different things and everything but I think generally people tend to sort of you know, go for their classics, go for the favourites, you know, so that sort of thing. But I I love the fact that it's, you know, when you're talking sausages, you sort of think about, you know, in Australia it's like snags on the barbie or it's your democracy sausage or, you know, even a hot dog, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's also, you know, you look look at sausages in terms of like, you know, the whole salami kind of version of things, that's sort of like that is also sausage as well, which is, you know, fermented, dried, sausages you know that that are kind of like really part of a lot of our lives you know so salami becomes a catch-all word for that style of sausage in a way salumi salumi yes. so you have salumi versus salami so salami is an actual sausage Mm. and salumi is the kind of genre yes so like kind of like um italian charcuterie Mm -hmm. so you know that that sort of thing and how long is it like the process to make a salumi, salami type sausage? Depends mm-hmm. on, because there's like, you know, you go to Italy and it's like, I think there's probably about four and a half billion varieties of salumi in there. Sure. It's like every town, every region has their own one. So it depends, but it can kind of like, you know, when you're thinking like just, a, you know, straight up salami, then you're kind of looking at six months to a year. Mm. It's sort of like you can do a fresher, like some people like to eat a fresher salami and there are versions of salamis that are, and, and of preserved meat in Italy, like, you know, things like induya, which is like a um it's like a soft spreadable mm. salami that sort of thing like you know they are you know probably it's it's a little less time but yep. um you know i sort of tend to think with you know because one of the reasons for that sort of and for sausages and everything was the fact that it was one of the best ways to preserve meat okay so it wouldn't kill you so you know and they and they did come up around that time like with the it was the reason that that sausages sort of were invented at the same time that societies were coming together there were more people and so they were able to bring down bigger game and um, larger animals and so there was more meat around so more leftover stuff and so that's when people started to do this and preserving it through smoking and through salting mm-hmm. was and drying was a way of being able to eat meat down the track without killing yourself. So, where, how do you cook a sausage? I mean, there must be different methods for, for different sausages. But what's your go-to? I, I I can't go past the barbecue. You know, it's sort of like I'm just like you know, one, like like one of those you know typical Anglo Aussies that you know kind of like, you know, it's sort of like yeah, 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 with a you know pair of tongs and a dumb apron. You know, so. <laughs> Over the coal <laughs> section or the plate section? I definitely always love the coal. Okay, I like sure. a bit of I like a bit of smoke and a bit of char yeah. on mine, but. Right. I I know people that kind of like a more pristine sausage, but I, you know, it's sort of like that's their problem. And now so. I hate to rain on this sausage parade, but in your kind of experience on the barbecue, what do you think that there is? Have you ever encountered a vegetarian sausage that you would eat? Can you kind of encapsulate the essence of a sausage without meat, or have I just been not listing this entire segment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, there is. Um, you know, they're, they're they're always improving. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, and I kind of think that as long I have to sort of like in order to enjoy a vegetarian sausage, mm. I have to think of it as another beast <laughs> yeah, okay. altogether, you know. And it's like, and there are some sort of flavours and sausages around. You know, it's like just because you're a vegetarian, you shouldn't be, you know, deprived of yeah. sausage dim. And, you know, and they've been making vegetarian sausages for ages. And now, like, you know, now the vegan thing is more that sort of like, you know, they're also looking, there's there's like, you know, they're great developments in sort of plant-based casings and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. So it's kind of like you're not, you're not kind of having to compromise and yeah yeah there's some hope i like it (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. exactly yeah yeah Yeah. i think and it's kind of yeah as and the more the plant-based community swells the better they're going to get yeah absolutely this listener who has tried and failed to buy call fat from butchers is it possible or easy yeah you just need to you probably need to go to your more old school um, butcher, you know, particularly in sort of like if you want to kind of go to Coburg, some of the butchers there, um, you know, you might you might have better luck in in those sort of areas, and also kind of give yourself some time as well, like ring around, and because um, they're not like a lot of places aren't going to have just call fat sitting in their butcher shop waiting mm. for you to stroll by, so uh, <laughs> you know it's like you know you will have to do a little bit, but it is it is available. And um, check out sort of some of the, you know, if the, if you ever go into a, one of the, like a Turkish restaurant that has, uh, I can recommend one um, called Miksha Food Truck. So they, um, Mishka, Mishka Food Truck, and they, they do an amazing sheftali there. They're sort of out, sort of broad meadows way. And um, they they do a really good one. So, you know, you could t- chat to whoever's making sausages in there as well. We have one other question from a listener yep. asking about piercing the casing, whether or not that's recommended for the never, cooking. Never, oh. never pierce the casing. You lose half the flavour and most of the fat. So, so why know, do we so do it? We do it because it looks like it needs some relief. There's this sort of idea that they're going to explode, like burst and explode. <laughs> and it's sort of like I don't, I don't know anybody that's died in a sausage-related accident <laughs> or sort of even had a burn injury on their face. You know, it's kind of like I think if you're scared, you know, maybe there's some sort of masking thing that yeah. you could do. But generally, no, no, don't, because you are, are actually going to like that's releasing all the fat and all the juices that are going to just drip down if you're barbecuing onto your coal or into your pan or whatever. No, never. <laughs> Let it swell unmolested. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Leave the sausage alone. Uh, mash and now bangers. Michael Harden, thanks heaps. No worries. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Talk film. We're joined by award-winning artist, manager, and exceptional talent in her own right, the unflappable <laughs> cinephile Simone Baldy. Morning, Simone. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Hello. Now, Hello. where have you been lately in the movie world? You always take us to unexpected places. I have been. Oh gosh, well, I've been really just girding my loins for the advent of Barbie and Oppenheimer. I can't believe Barbie, which Vash is going to talk about, I believe, next week. I just, it's so nice to see people like collectively, consciously anticipating a film. Mm. It's been a good long while. I really hope it's not shit. <laughs> um, other than that, I, uh, I did go and see uh, the new Indiana Jones a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Just to just say b- farewell. Better than the last one? Mm, I mean... That is not a very high bar. Oh, okay. I'm going to say marginally, yes. Uh, and then I caught a new lovely little European film that's um, 
which is what I'm going to talk about today, because five minutes into the review, (laughs) let's land on The Ordinaries. It looks fascinating. I can't wait to hear what you think about this one. Have you? So, so Sophie Linenbaum is the director and um, comes out of Germany. It actually debuted last year in, I think it's like New Visions or A Strand of the Berlinale. And uh, yeah, it's lovely. It's a first time director called Sophie Linenbaum who wildly ambitiously has created a world that is sort of this kind of meta-commentary about uh, characters in film. Paula is the main character. Well, Paula is, is <laughs> Paula is the central protagonist in the film who is attending main character school in a universe in which all people are designated main characters, supporting characters, or if they're terribly unfortunate, outtakes <laughs> left on the cutting room floor. Paula has uh, lost her father, who was a she, she has been told is that was an outstanding main character in his time. Uh, she's told this by her mother, who is a diligent supporting character in a kind of a Terry Gilliam Brazil esque context, where she sort of has to attend work in her trap garb and just hang out in the background of scenes. Um, but that's not Paula's destiny, as far as she knows. She and her best friend Hannah, who is very determinedly from a main character family. Uh, who live in vivid colour and have a tendency of breaking out into emotional um, musical numbers to demonstrate <laughs> the centeredness of them. Um, they're at school and they're learning how to use their heart readers, which basically create the swelling orchestral music behind speeches that the kids are trying to make. So Paula, Paula is just this adorable-looking young, played by an adorable-looking young woman uh, in a really wonderful performance has a few doubts about herself and she I mean I was gonna say she doesn't necessarily look like a main character. She 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 does she absolutely does. But she's got this kind of adorable kind of frumpy, you know, undertone to her like little face and, and persona which is really sweet. She starts to suspect that maybe she isn't she doesn't have a main character destiny and she follows she goes kind of down a rabbit hole of looking for her father who um may not have been a celebrated main character that she was told and this leads her to the to the uh, land of the outtakes where characters with all manner of um, undesirable movie ticks, including a lovely boy called Simon who's constantly jump-cutting mid-sentence, which is probably my favourite device in the film. Um, she has to meet all these black and white characters and outtakes in pursuit of finding out who she truly is. Mm. And, you know, then ultimately... There's a nice moral. Are, are we talking code about class? Is that what's happening? There is code about class, yes, and there is um, undertones that are about kind of uh, racial fractions. The the land of the outtakes is this kind of heavily policed apartheid era gated off uh, section, and obviously the supporting characters and main characters live in various kind of manicured um, Kaufman, Burton, Lanthimos esque curated landscapes um but i will say this about the film so there's so much i mean if you watch the trailer for this film your heart will sing. your heart reader will sing um <laughs> because it just you know you can see how wildly inventive Lindbaum's vision is going into this movie this was exactly my experience watching the trailer i know but simon i have i've given you i've loaded it up front <laughs> with all the goodness that's in my heart and the, the <laughs> sorry i'm about to like segue to a very awkward Metaphor: The film groans under its own weight. Uh, the 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 problem with it is it's so wildly inventive, but it's really fixated on the uh, 
technical details of the world and the interior logic and so it never makes that like um, great emotional leap to connecting the um, mechanics of this very detailed world to an emotional punch that lands it's just it's kind of world building the whole way through Um, which is such a pity because it's quite visionary and clever in terms of the world building. Because when you were talking before, I think you mentioned Kaufman and reminded me when I saw the trailer of uh, Synecdoche, New York. Mm-hmm. We played a song from that soundtrack by coincidence mm-hmm. before and the idea of yeah, the, the commentary and the meta-commentary and also the deeply experimental filmmaking techniques. On that level, did you find it exciting? Yes, I did and I love Synecdoche, but I think that... Most people did not. I think of all of Kaufman's films. So I've used Kaufman as a, and, you know, there's an enormous homage to his work here. If you use his works as a template, I know I talk about, I think I talk about this a lot or have done over the past 20 years of film reviews. Um, so Synecdoche, uh, an incredibly complex film that is really philosophical primarily. Um, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, narratively, conceptually, sort of complex but it's really focused on the emotional import and the interpersonal philosophy and that's why that film devastates people so this is more in the synecdoche camp the ordinary is for a lot of people i suspect this is the first time they've heard the film pronounced correctly (laughs) (laughs) i'm never confident when i'm when i'm pronouncing it. i did not know how to pronounce it until i saw that film and then i believe i might have been corrected on breakfasters of yore and one of the sort of related um discussion is that of film lovers having a lot to appreciate with The Ordinaries in a sense that there's sort of Easter eggs uh, sprinkled throughout the film. Would you say that that was a source of pleasure and surprise for you? No. Well, I mean, if if there are, I've missed them and there's probably a lot going on in terms of... I mean, there are definitely references to black and white cinema tropes and musical cinema tropes Uh, And it's definitely very knowing and self-aware in terms of how you construct a film. But it didn't, other than the character Simon in his jump cuts, which, again, (laughs) beautiful, I just felt like, again, because it was just scrambling so so much to make every scene fit into this, uh, the mechanics, that it was just a bit kind of over-cranked, unfortunately, for Mm -hmm. me. So I didn't get that level of delight from it. But that stuff is in there. And if a person is particularly... um, uh, literate around how films are put together, there's probably quite a lot that's delightful there. I will say, all the acting is amazing. The yeah. performances are really incredible and the production design is really, really incredible. And this is just all about expectations being damning. Mm. And let this be a warning to next week's Barbie watchers. Yeah. The problem is I went in with my expectations so high and this is why generally I try and avoid knowing anything about a film before I go in and why I'm like the world's crappest film critic because I just avoid film press because I don't want to know because if you go in neutral, you can land better at, you can and you can take more from it. Uh, How long did it go for? Two and a half hours. Two and a half I hours. saw the, the runtime and I thought of you, Nat, actually. Wait, hold on. Am I confusing that with Indiana Jones? Maybe two hours. Let me, I mean. Did you? Have you also religious about... Why no, I just feel like wrong? they're really blowing out of late and it's just like maybe if it is, you know, kind of drowning under its own weight, sinking, it's like shave half hour off, yeah, you know, leave someone with a bit of pep in their step. This is one where, interestingly, my, my, my re- response when I walked out was not 
you could, unlike Indiana Jones, you could happily have lost 45 minutes of that. It was... I just wish a script dot. I would have taken two hours of this film if it had been a really conceptually like more tightly fine-tuned um, version. And some critics have said there will be a remake of this movie in America and they will get an army of script doctors in to actually to, to cut back. It actually made me think of Miramax. Mm. Remember how Miramax, um, for all that Harvey Weinstein is the, the devil? Mm. Um, they had some this, great films. They made some great films because they took them away from their makers and they cut them down, mm. and which, you know, obviously sounds horrifying to, to anyone who, who believes in the kind of primacy of the auteur, but they made them better. They, they, I've seen a number of the originals. They cut them back for an American audience and they actually, the stories kind of blossom. Cinema Paradiso, for anyone who cares, is a perfect example of this. I have this bias that I try to overcome about high-concept films where the, <laughs> the line, the log line is so poppy and exciting, I feel like I've seen the film already mm-hmm. or I wonder what, because as you describe the meta of the main characters, yeah. I, I feel like I get it, I get the idea. Yeah, and if and I want the film to communicate more than an idea, and a well, that's where I think the emotional punch needs to come from. Like you need to care about the characters, and and you just in this instance, unfortunately, you you just don't get there. You just don't don't care because it's all about the idea. But you know. Jesus, great idea. Yeah, it is, isn't <laughs> it's it? It's really great. It's so disappointing. Um, and it's so funny to address explicitly the subtext of so many other films. Yeah. I did. The one thing that... Of people coming to terms with their own place in the world, I suppose. The, well, the one thing that kind of grated me about it, ironically, because in a world of like 15-second social media engagement, they make this very large and long film to engage with something that's a very pop idea in the TikTok sphere, which is the notion of mm. people being main characters versus support characters. Are you guys familiar with this, like, trope, yeah. TikTok trope? Yeah, yep, definitely. So that, yeah. That's that – because when you were asking me about all the Easter eggs for cinema files, I'm like, I feel like there are Easter eggs for TikTok viewers. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. No, but yeah, no, an, an interesting kind of, of yeah, exactly relationship with, as you say, a pop cultural moment in yeah. a very long form traditional cinematic sense, but also deeply experimental. And also, I guess, folding back on itself because the whole notion of like main characters versus support characters came from cinema, went into the social media sphere, and have now folded back into the cinema. Which is very synecdoche in New York. Very, ah. very inception. <laughs> uh, the Ordinaries is the name of the film. Is there anything else we should know? Is it. Nova and... It ain't bad. It's it's at a number of... Well, I think it might be just a Nova anyway. Yeah. Okay, it's The Ordinary. Simone Baldi, thanks very much. Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. Randy felt faces to it his stand-up around the world, playing sold-out seasons in London and New York, featuring at Montreal Just for Laughs, being nominated for Best Comedy at Edinburgh Fringe and at taking home Most Outstanding Show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. The high-energy puppet has appeared on the ABC, NBC, Netflix and along the way amassed close to <laughs> 2 million TikTok followers. After live shows, including Postcards from Purgatory, The Book of Randicus and Purple Privilege, Randy has returned to Australia from self-imposed exile with Feltopia and head of the upcoming 
upcoming leg of his huge tour, the artist and purveyor of fabric-based filth, joins us now. Randy, welcome back to Breakfasters. Magnificent introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much. I want you to bring me on stage every day of my life. Well, truly. It's, what's it like to be back home? Are you a it's tall- real good. Yeah. It's real good. Yeah, yeah, it's real good. It's been a while. I was only gone for five months this time, but it's real nice to be back in Melbourne Town. It's nice to be back in Triple R too. It's nice to be back in Triple R's good books, actually. It's been a while since oh, you, you've had me back in the studio after last time. What happened, do you think? Do you remember this? I don't know if you remember this, Simon, but uh, there was like a, a comedy. <laughs> they ran like a summer comedy show <laughs> that I hosted with Kate McCartney. Oh. Yeah, and then... What could um, possibly go wrong there? Well, we had Ronnie Cheng came in. We had this We had this segment where I would ask comedians to play their like pump-up song, like what song they like to play to get themselves fired up before <laughs> a show. And Ronnie Cheng picked a Katy Perry track. Oh. <laughs> and I played it. I played it and I was... Uh, Bigsy was very unhappy. There was a lot of... There was a lot of calls. There were a lot of complaints. I got physically removed from the studio. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that happen. No, no. It's great. It's great to be back. I thought it was hilarious. Nobody else did. Because you're a bit of a... You like the heavy rock and roll, don't you? Yeah, Typically. I'm a metal metalhead from way back. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what's your G-Up music? Uh, I like... I, oh, good question. Um, <laughs> I, I did, You know what? The last little bit of the tour, because I was starting to fatigue yeah. after the... I started listening to Damaged, which is... I don't know if you remember Damaged, grindcore, hardcore yes, metal band from absolutely. Ballarat. Oh, my God. Can we play some Damaged on Breakfasters? <laughs> Let's see what we can do. Tadpole will be wrapped. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, got, I, got, I got sort of got stuck into that stuff. But then um, the rest of the time I just listened to uh, meditative podcasts to get me in the zone. Yeah, right. A lot of, you can do it. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a loser. (laughs) Go out on stage and do a good job. (laughs) You're not a loser. What what sort of audiences are you amassing? Are you Mm. surprised or what what conclusions are you drawing as you tour and these people flock to you? It's been really interesting because I release so much stuff on the internet, right? I just put out all my specials on YouTube and I put clips on social media and stuff. So I didn't know who my audience were really when I arrived in some of these countries, particularly through Europe and some of the places in the States. And they're very similar. They're very sweet. They're very nerdy. They're kind of neurodivergent (laughs) kind of uh, gender spectrum gaming, Twitch streaming, anime nerds. (laughs) It's fascinating. I don't know what it is about my face mm. that says cartoon character, but they're all, they're all about it, and it's very cool. They're they're very sweet. They come out. They they get. They make me presents. Oh, what's the best present you've got? Um, usually like a, a some sort of sculpture of my own head. Oh, fantastic! Made out of some sort of questionable fabric or material. One can never have enough of those. I know. I've got a couple. I've got. There's a trend of crocheted versions of me that keep turning up at shows, which is good. People keep giving me drugs as well. I oh. ma- Yeah, I made the mistake of telling a story on stage about someone giving me drugs after a show, like it was a joke in one of my specials. So now people turn up and just give me drugs after shows, which is not ideal for a sober <laughs> touring comedian. Well, the temptation <laughs> after every show. Well, have every some show. mushrooms, Randy. I'm, I'm going to get on a plane. <laughs> well, sober is also the word because, of course, you're bringing a bit of a political platform to this tour as well. So we'd mm. love to hear a little bit more about this dimension to Randy Feltface. I would love to tell you more about it as well. <laughs> and um, it, 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 I would love to tell you that it's not just a thinly veiled uh, 
publicity concept <laughs> in order to make the show. No, the show is all about me basically moving out of comedy and into politics and uh, and whether or not I stay in politics, Nat mm-hmm. Harris. I mean, who knows? Oh, t- what? Would you be on my cabinet? Well, tell me a little bit about what kind of legacy Randy is looking to kind of leave. Yeah, well, want to make some big changes in this town. Snacks everywhere. More tea, less coffee, yeah. firstly. I can get on board with that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a bad thing to say on breakfast radio? Less coffee. <laughs> We're very fond of coffee, but equal love for tea, that's for sure. What's your go-to coffee, Simon? What do you have in the, the morning? Moment, I'm having batch brew often. Oh, yep. Yep, just for the speed and immediacy of it. But okay. I love all coffees. Mm. All mm. coffees. Really? I, this is the thing. Yeah, you go. I was just no, say, no, you go. No, I will like Come to on! say I'm going to work it around the room. No, so it's I was your preparing turn. my answer. Yep. Yes, and. Um, <laughs> I enjoy a Makona. Definitely oh. love an instant coffee. Makona. I like to mix it up as well because I have soy with my coffee, so that's so thick. So sometimes mm. I like to just kind of change it up with an instant. What about you? Can I? I oh, don't drink coffee. Can I ask oh. a question? Because it sucks. Um, <laughs> with the with you the suck. soy, you yeah. suck. No, you do. Have a coffee. <laughs> um, the the uh, soy situation mm. in this town is everyone still doing soy? Because in America, I travelled for a brief period with my comedy husband Sammy J. Came to uh, visit of me uh, in Washington DC, and uh, we had. He's a coffee drinker. So we went out and everywhere we tried to get a coffee, they would only offer like almond or oat, oat milk. Yes. Yeah. No soy in the States. I'm not sure why. No, I didn't know that went out of fashion. It's <laughs> definitely out of fashion. Yeah, I right. would say here people are drinking oat milk, I would say, is the top non-dairy. Mm, and mm. then almond, then soy. Yeah. That's the ranking. So Okay, that's good to know. Over here. I'm, a big, I'm a big oat milk fan. I love it. Same. It's lovely. Love yeah, an oat milk with my, with my porridge or, or just a nice glass of oat milk. Milk in the morning. Oh, how lovely! Yeah, I, just I can't squeeze quit. my own oats. <laughs> I you soak it. Are you doing your own oats? Of course. I'm growing wheat. <laughs> just <laughs> my cereal. I don't eat the wheat. I drink the oats. You'd be surprised. Apparently, I mean, as if we couldn't get sort of wanky enough about coffee. Bring There's it. There's a Melbourne Magic Coffee. If you are you familiar with this? No, but I cannot wait. Yes. Uh, Tell me all about kicking it. Kicking off. I think it's is it double ristretto? It is the magic. I know this. What, what the, what's a double ristretto when it's at home? It's a to- oh, I don't know it from home, but it's the top of a double shot of coffee. So you ca- yeah, take the kind of first twenty seconds rather than the thirty seconds oh, when indeed. it's pause from the machine. But oh, that's so- these are wow. the people that you have to get votes from, Rand. <laughs> you know what? So what are your policies? No, I think I'm I'm running on a policy of no more coffee. So yeah. I feel like maybe Melbourne's not my city. <laughs> have gotten stupid, I yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. It's all right. I we wonder, all need our things. I want to ask about Grimace. Uh, yep. he, he's must be your only competition, but I haven't seen him for a while. Is he gone? What? Have you been – are you a TikToker? Have uh, been following? There's been this TikTok trend lately of this Grimace shake situation. <laughs> I don't know if you know about this. No. Any of the listeners want to phone in? <laughs> Nobody that listens to Breakfasters is a huge TikToker, let's be honest. Maybe? Who knows? But anyway, there was this trend of people like drinking – McDonald's put out a Grimace shake. I can't believe I'm talking about this. <laughs> 
I mean, you brought up I Grimace. Did, I did. Well, it's the only other purple well, you, puppet. Well, Barney. Barney. <laughs> oh, right, Barney. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I get the Grimace reference. The reason I know about the Grimace shape is because people kept tagging me in it. It's this thing where people would go to McDonald's and buy a Grimace shake and then sip it and then die in horrific circumstances. Ah. Because Grimace's whole premise was that he would steal your shape, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, so anyway, that's hilarious. That trend lasted for a week. Glad we talked about <laughs> it. <laughs> You're a non-stop content maker. It's Topical. just what you do. It's terrible. I never wanted to be a content creator, but now I just wanted to make things. Yes. You know what I mean? But now it's more just, um, oh, look, I can't really knock it anymore. I used to be very anti-socials, but... You know, that's how I sell my well, tickets we, these days. We love it because we get to follow you along. Of course, we're in Melbourne and we're so thrilled to have you back. But you've been mm. all around the world and we've been talking a bit about your American experiences. Yep. But can you tell us some more stories from the road and what you're seeing out in Feltopia? I can tell you a story of what happened to me this morning before I walked in the studio. I just locked my keys in the car. Oh. Yeah, but it's not a key lock. It's like a key where you have to beep the beeper. To yeah. It's a rental car that I have for this bit. And... I climbed into the back seat to get something out of the back seat and then got out the back door and shut the door. Uh, and the front door, like the lights are on, the engine's off, but it's just sitting on that. Does anyone know how I can get my – I've got to do press all day. This oh, so is this not is a, anything about my show. This is just a current emergency. This is a call to arms. Nine, this is the state of your life. Nine three double eight one zero two seven. How do I get my keys out of a car that you need to go blip, blip? Do I have to call the RACV? Is this going to be? could be the that, case. That or a coat hanger. The number of car thefts uh, that are going on, and I'm uh, people can't even get into their own car. Yeah. Like you a, know, yeah, essentially what you've done there on the air is just say there's a car with the keys in it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. If you, you know that, how to, to break into a car, yeah, get precisely. out there. It's on the back. What's that street back there? It's on the back street behind Triple R. <laughs> uh, you've, been, you've played casinos. You know, is there have any? I? Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, well, you know, some casinos have comedy clubs, and there's nothing I can do. About it. <laughs> no, um, I did do the Virgin Hotel Casino in Vegas recently. That was a real hoot. Whoa! Yeah, Vegas is weird. <laughs> yep. What? What are you? I mean, with all the temptations and everything, what? What does it? When a puppet's in Vegas, is it stay in Vegas? I yeah, suppose. pretty much. Gambling has never been something that's that's really uh, attracted me. All the things that go along with it in Vegas are very attractive, you know. But I, I think it's just I don't know. I'm I'm pretty. We talk about this road life as being this romantic. You're traveling around and having a great time, but really, it's just it's essentially it's 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 a, it's a hotel, plane, comedy club, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But I do, you know, I do the bird watching thing these days. Oh, bird you're noticing. a twitcher. Bird noticing. So, um, so that gets me out of the house. It makes me leave the hotel and go to a green space and look at trees. Oh, how beautiful! What bird? Any birds in Vegas? Yeah, heaps of birds heaps. in Vegas. Oh my god! Yeah, I saw some Californian scrub jays out in the um because it's like it's, it, I don't know if you've ever been to Vegas, but no. there's like this chunk of like action in the middle of the desert, and then it's just surrounded by like these magnificent canyons. <laughs> this is me pitching for my nature documentary series. <laughs> Observe the magnificent canyons. Oh. Look at the birds. So this is adjacent to your political uh, pursuits, is this? It's adjacent. It's poli- politics adjacent. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll weave my policies in. Look at the beautiful can- canyons. No, mo- no more coffee. <laughs> That'll be my... Well, it's starting to work. Yeah, you got I, me. Uh, you I... know you're not going to drink coffee anymore? Uh, no, no. I'm, I'm getting you off the no, it's, it's not about the coffee. It's more just enjoying the, the bird watch chat. Okay, I'm okay. about it.
You always look so dapper on stage, Randy. Mm, thank you. Is it, how many suits do you have? I have several. In fact, coming back to Australia was delightful because I got to crack open the cupboard and look at my range uh, of suits. Mm. And which one to choose? Which ones smell less mildewy <laughs> this morning? <laughs> I left them in a shipping container and they're all a bit mildew-scented. Can you smell me? Oh, uh, I don't, can actually Don't do bit. it. <laughs> a little bit damp. Yes, the Makona can't drown out this <laughs> funk. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love a suit. Um, um, I actually I dressed down for this morning. I, sa- I had a suit on. I did a, a show last night, and I had a suit on. And then I'm about to go to some other doing some breakfast television crap. I feel like <laughs> I should probably suit up for them. But I thought I'd be all hip. You look great. Do you like it? There's a little R on my yeah, jacket. Yeah, I've definitely noticed the detail. It on looks that. like I did it deliberately, but it's just the brand. Hey, you don't need to tell us that. <laughs> Just yes, I do. Know. Just let us know. I can't it. lie to my constituents. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are the suits like after a show? Are they? Do you sweat? Yeah, I sweat. I sweat. I mean, again, the funk. Not Can Prince you not Andrew. smell it? Yeah, exactly. I'm a wow reference. Oh. Breakfast. That's like. Cutting edge stuff oh, from Harris in the Stop it. morning time. It's no. not appropriate. It wasn't appropriate. I'm sorry. It about was it. very appropriate. <laughs> What's the statute of limitations on? But I um yeah no I I do sweat. I I sweat not out of my face though. I sweat out. I sweat from the neck. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We uh, the anatomical intricacies of Randy felt face. Yes, there you go. You're uh, getting all the inside information. Now you're off to Bendigo, Ballarat. Oh, look as David Quirk says, you know, just want to see the bank in its natural habitat. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Bendigo and Ballarat to, to kick off the tour, um, which is, you know, where everybody starts their tours these days, uh, Bendigo. Always. I just wanted to leave a tiny bit of dead air after that statement. But, no, it's going to be great. I've already sold one of them out, added the second one. Ballarat's going to be rad. Love country Victoria. It's where, it's where I'm I'm actually living in Kyneton for a moment Beautiful. while I'm getting my feet Everyone's back on the Everyone's done ground. the tree change, Randy. Well, I grew up out that way. Yeah. So it's more of a... Going home. No, it's more of a shameful return. <laughs> but... Um, I got an Airbnb in Kyneton and it's like a 70s Instagram wet dream palace. It's got like, it's got a bar and wood panel walls and a sauna. So every morning I've been having a sauna and then jumping in the freezing cold pool that is there as well. And I'm very privileged and it's gross, but oh my God. Do you guys Wim Hof? I was going to say this. Are you Wim Hofing with your magic coffee? (laughs) I cannot believe the number of shows you're doing. Uh, You know, it won't be long till you're in Winnipeg and I know. Edmonton and Calgary. I know. That's like only in like two months. That's weird that it's going to be Canada after this. But um, I've, I've got a running joke where I always announce North American tours and never include Canada. <laughs> and they hate it. So uh, so I'm finally doing a Canadian tour to get them off my back. And think of all the content you'll get to create before then. I know. That's the whole point, isn't it? That's why we're in this. None of the comedy, all of the content. And all the snowfields and saunas in Canada, it'll be a dream. Oh, my God, yes. And bird watching and also slandering coffee drinkers in another country <laughs> there's running themes this uh, is we've come full circle what a tremendous platform you've got going on mm, uh mm, randy mm. hello felt face yes where should we go feltface.com we yes. will join the slew of your millions of followers yes well you know i'm i'm doing the palais theater mm. i mean we mentioned bendigo and ballarat but the palais is the one that i am terrified about selling tickets for yeah. so if you've ever had a passing interest in my face now's the time to get on board and you can be a lot more saucy than you can on every other platform, can't you? 
In what? What do you mean? Well, you Lies. can just really cut loose. Like, oh yeah, I mean that's where it's at. That's where the fun times are. I do a lot of improvisation mm. and uh, and playing around. I don't know how to do crowd work in a three thousand seater. That might be weird. <laughs> too many people to get through. Yeah, yeah. Everybody go round the room. <laughs> Tell us about your day. No, it's more like if I'm talking to someone in the front row, I feel like the people up in the gods are going to be like, "What is happening?" Uh, of course. Uh, look, Randy, uh, you've, look! Like, you've returned home. It's it's very tall poppy returning home. I, is it? Do you think Australians are going to try to cut me down? Is there going to be, oh, Mr. Fancy Pants You're over too there. successful. Yeah, I locked my keys in the car no. before this interview. No. I'm just like all of you. It's no, a warm embrace and a cup of tea. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's what I'm after. Uh, Randy Feltface, thanks very much. Cheers. Triple R. I had a few missed calls from my mum yesterday, so gave her a call back and I was like, oh, hi, mum, how are you? And she, she's like, Nat. <laughs> she was straight into business. She's like, so I've heard, you know, you've been talking about this postcard on Breakfasters. I've been thinking of very little else this week, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you've been on this mission to return this postcard. Have I told you my story? And I was like, no, what is it? So... For those who, ha- who haven't heard the previous segments, basically I received a lovely postcard and I'm just trying to go through a process of elimination to get it to its rightful owner because it was delivered to my house. Um, so my mum continued to tell me this story. I had heard it before, but I think I must have been away when it happened, probably happened about seven years ago, um, where she said she was sitting in her backyard and a man came through. She lives on like the back lot of a property. So he'd gone down the side, knocked on the um, the gate and came through into her courtyard. She was sitting out there with my sister. Um, and he was like, excuse me, is that uh, combi out the front yours? And she's like, oh, well, it's my daughter's, um, but it was our dad's. It's an orange like 70s combi that is quite distinct. And he's like, and do your do you have a few daughters? He's like, yes. Um, and he's like, do they have red hair? And she's like, yes. And he's like, I what an have. intriguing so- conversation. Yes. So there's there's four of us all up. Three of us have red hair. Other one, Jasmine's blonde. Um, she always wished she had red hair. Um He's like, I have something of yours. And he looked, he, he was absolutely thrilled. And he's like, I've been looking for you. I've been looking for you. <laughs> Decades, centuries. For five years. <laughs> that is a significant amount of time. So what he had found was a box of our family photos in the next suburb over on the corner of a street. And he's been carrying this box with him, hoping to see this combi. And all he had was in the pictures is there was the combi, no um, register, the license plate wasn't in it, the retro, um, the combi and girls with red hair and, and a whole lot of family pictures were the main two distinct things he was looking for. Sound like you've described a cult. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all redheads can join <laughs> and combi owners. Um, yeah, so... That he had been, and the first thing he said was, he's like, I cannot wait to tell my family (laughs) because he had approached several combi owners, um, like done a bit of a knock on the door. The uh, the part of the conversation I particularly enjoyed was when I questioned my mum on, I'm like, how did a box of our photos end up 
on like the street and listening to her kind of bat that question was quite entertaining. <laughs> she was like, well, you know how my mum also has a van, a Volkswagen. She's like, well, you know how my back door is a bit funny and when I, um, you know, turn corners, sometimes it opens and Let, so maybe it rolled out or, you know, sometimes how I throw things out of the window. <laughs> and I'm like, aha, this was my, this is my role model. This explains a lot. But we can, yeah, I suppose the was anxious to focus on the joy of the reunion. Yes. And so it was an amazing reunion. Um, he came, he left, he drove, I think, yeah, my sister was there. Maybe another one of my sisters was there. So he's like, oh, there they are. A real aha moment. He drove straight home and got the photos and brought them back and kind of went through them with my sister and my mum. And then they later went over to his house with a bottle of wine and a letter and, like, thanked him and, and had a lovely time. So And he showed you the shrine that he yeah, has to your family. Yeah, on the wall and <laughs> all of the pins and the the pieces of string. Yeah, and but his family had left because this had been going on. His wife's long gone. He's like, you've got to get this up. Um but you had the fulfilment of an extraordinary quest. Yeah. It also kind of gives me some parameters, some, you know, ideas of how long these things can go for. That's right. You know, five years. Um, <laughs> and we're just in the first week. Yeah, and kind of going off his process of, like, what he had to work off. And so, like, looking at what I've got to work off, I've got a sailboat, a red buoy, and Cradle Mountain. So I guess I'm going to Cradle Mountain and, you know, swimming out to some boats and red boys. I'm not sure. I really want to get to the bottom of what emergency, because a box of photos as well. I know. Appears to be the result of a family emergency. Like what's the one thing that you collect? Wow. Yeah. Indeed. The photos. The photos. I know. And then it went unnoticed for five years. Um, And were the photos much were they any good? Yeah, they were excellent photos. They were all like copies for an event, I'm pretty sure. So, um, yeah, they were, I think, the best ofs, if mm. you will. <laughs> the, there was a box of um, hits, if you will, <laughs> all, all all in frames, all frameable photos. So maybe that kind of really drove his motivation. Appreciating the artistry of them as well as the personal sentimental significance. Yeah, so they were copies, but yeah. So. And where are they now? Do they have a photo album? I mean, have they been prized and oh, they now locked away and to, never to be flung from a no, comedy? No, my mum is constantly sorting, never-ending. I ask her, how are you, mum? What's going on? Like, she's very busy. Oh, just sorting, 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 yeah. sorting. So... All mums sorted all of the photos into, like, we all have a box each, different categories, where they are exactly, I'm not sure, but they've been sorted to some degree. Good. Be assured of that, Uh, Daniel. Um, And is there any update on, is it what Ginny and... Uh, No, so it's Dear John and Lily, Dear John John and Lily, and we love Peter and Joe. Right. So we're searching for John and Lily. It was Peter and Joe who were in Cradle Mountain, so I guess... And possessing that. exquisite artistic abilities. Yeah. Listeners, there must be a listener who knows a John and Lily. A John and Lily who are friends with Peter and Joe. Yeah. I bet they've all drank a bottle of Grenache together <laughs> exactly. talking about their hiking trips. I bet they've gone to Cradle Mountain. I bet. And it was the 24th of the 3rd this year. Yeah. I bet John and Lily have done the Overland or something fantastic like that. <laughs> I bet they camped together in summer. Where are you? Text in <laughs> you Four and a half years, you've got to wait, baby. (laughs) 
Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.